preachers were, were cautioned against ad-libbing, but uh, I spent this week uh, in my teaching gig for Berkeley School of Theology. We did a, a third of our intensives with our doctoral and ministry students, and four of my students were in the class this week, so I was on Zoom from nine, basically nine to five all week, um, Monday through Friday. I skipped all the Lord on Friday. But one of the wonderful things about this class, um, uh, I won't, uh, with the title of it, does it matters less than the fact that it's, a, it's an incredibly diverse group of people uh, from many backgrounds and cultures and colors. And uh, a lot of what we did this week was to delve into the wonders of diversity. And I just uh, come out of the week thinking how much God loves diversity and how much we can learn from diversity. And it seems to me that King, especially in his great uh, uh, dependence on the notion of love, that love was the only power that matters in the end, um, also was a lover of diversity. So I just wanted to throw in that ad lib because I wanted to throw it in, and there it is. Um, I do want to say that uh, Jim and Bong Long and family will be out from noon today through next Sunday, through ne a week from Tuesday. Anyway, you're going to be out. This is because this is uh, uh, Lunar New Year, right? And so that's a big time of celebration, especially for Bong Long and her family. So uh, we wish the, we wish them well in this week of remembering and celebration. This prayer from King. We thank you for your church, founded upon your word, that challenges us to do more than sing and pray, but go out and work as though the very answer to our prayers depended on us and not upon you. Help us to realize that humanity was created to shine like the stars and live on through all eternity. Keep us, we pray, in perfect peace. Help us to walk together, pray together, sing together, and live together until that day when all God's children, black, white, red, brown, and yellow, will rejoice in one common band of humanity in the reign of our Lord and of our God. We pray. Amen. What are you looking for? At first glance, it seems like a rather prosaic question. Hardly the stuff from which a poem, a song, or a proclamation would be constructed. What are you looking for? My keys? You mean the ones lying here on the counter? What are you looking for? Uh, my glasses? You mean the ones sitting on top of my head? What are you looking for? My car. I know I parked it somewhere in this lot. <laughs> Push the alarm on your key ring. What are you looking for? What are you looking for? A question that often has a simple, practical answer when we put our minds to it. But sometimes it's a question of deeper meaning. 
In Luke's gospel, in that famous 15th chapter, he asks it in a way three times in, the famous, uh, in these famous uh, parables, what are you looking for? A coin that was part of my dowry and is of great value to me. And she cleans the house until she finds it. What are you looking for? Oh, one of those ornery lambs has wandered off from the flock, and I've got to find it before dark falls. And he searches and he searches until there in the dusk he finds it mindlessly grazing on the far side of the hill. What are you looking for? Home. Or at least sustenance and security. That provide, that's provided for my father's hired hands. Yet there is his father waiting to welcome him as a child who was lost and is found, who was dead and is alive again. In every case, the answer to the question is a cause for great rejoicing. There's nothing simple or prosaic about these images of God's beloved community that we may find ourselves looking for. In the beginning of John's gospel, the writer wants to set the stage for Jesus as the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one of God. He tells us in the prologue that the word is made flesh, that light dwells in the darkness, that the Holy One takes human form and dwells among us full of grace and truth. And then he plunges right into his account of John the Baptist crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Holy One. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandal, John declares. And bang, the preliminaries are over. Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he cries as Jesus enters the scene and the drama begins. John the Baptist was very popular in his day and had a great many followers. Scholars believe that the bulk of Jesus' first followers, in fact, came from among John's disciples, especially after John was arrested and executed. In the Gospel of John, that transition begins right away, right up front in the first chapter. The very day that Jesus appears on stage, John the Baptist introduces two of his disciples to him, this, he says, this is the Messiah, the one for whom we have been waiting. Tentatively, they turn toward Jesus and they begin to follow him, but, but not too close, at a distance. But Jesus, aware of their presence, turns and confronts them with the question of the day. What are you looking for? <clears throat> Taken off guard, they shuffle their feet. Not sure what to say at this point, they lamely respond with a seemingly prosaic question of their own. Well, um, where are you staying, teacher? Maybe that they're stalling for time, a little panicked, 
trying to decide if they are going to follow him or, and how far. They do add that honorific teacher at the end of their question, but they're not quite sure who this stranger from Galilee really is. Who is this guy? John seems to see something in him, but we're not so sure. Come and see, he responds. Come and see. Taking pity on their anxiety, seeing more deeply into their desire than they themselves can see. Come and see. Of course, this seemingly simple exchange is anything but. There may be no more important question put to these first disciples or to us than what are you looking for? At its deepest, it is the very question of the meaning of our lives. It is a question of identity and activity. It goes to who we are and who we want to be and what we will do with our one wild and precious life. Without ceremony, Jesus challenges these followers who are not even sure they want to be his disciples. What are you looking for? What are you looking for? Perhaps the hesitancy of their response is precisely because Jesus had hit the nail on the head. He has asked them the very question that has haunted them all of their lives. What are you looking for? In a sermon on this text, Myrna Kaiser uses this illustration. She asks the congregation to imagine coming home one day from work or school or play or wherever you've been and finding a huge box on the doorstep. She says, suppose on the box is an announcement. Contained in this box is what you have been looking for all of your life. With that announcement, she asks, what would you expect to find in a box, in that box when you opened it? So friends, close your eyes for a moment, if you will. Imagine this big box on your own doorstep. Pick it up, look it over, carry it into your living room. Set it down and spend a few minutes with that crucial question. What are you looking for? Then slowly open the box. What is there? Is it security? Fame? Fortune? Happiness? Peace? Health? Eternal youth? Immortality? Freedom from pain and suffering, love? What is it that drives you forward that would satisfy the very desires of your heart? You see, this is the question Jesus asks us along with those first followers. What are you looking for? The answer matters a great deal if we mean to follow the Christ. 
And so we try to buy time. Well, um, uh, well uh, tell, us what you, tell us where you're staying right now. Uh, we want to make sure you're not luring us too far outside of our comfort zone. Maybe a better question for us is, where do we find you? You see, it really is a question of where Jesus will take us if we do decide that he is the one we're looking for. We want some assurance that we can manage the journey. And friends, it's not always clear that we can. That's why we ask precious Lord to take our hand to lead us on and help us stand. You see, we would like for it not to be too strenuous, right? We don't want to walk 500 miles, Gary. Ah, yeah, see, it's not that hard. But we don't want it to be too strenuous if that could be arranged, Jesus. In the first century, John and his followers were looking for the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one of God. But then once they'd found him, the next big question was whether or not they were willing to go with him on this journey that was not at all what they had expected. See, the question is really no different for us. Once we have met Jesus, are we ready and willing to follow all the way? Well, come and see, he invites. Come and see. Check it out. Decide for yourselves if I am what you're looking for and if you want to journey with me. And we all have that choice. And here is where the answer gets especially challenging. If they were expecting to open the Jesus box and find it full of whatever would fill their personal selfish desires, they were bound to be disappointed. This Jesus, this Messiah was Isaiah's suffering servant. John the Baptist, Paschal Lamb, the Prince of Peace and the Sovereign of Love, the one for others. To love God with one's whole being and to love one's neighbor as oneself was the rule of his reign. No one would get rich or powerful or become famous from following him. Remember a few weeks ago we had Luke's account of Jesus' encounter with two disciples from John the Baptist? In that account, John, now in prison, sends them to ask Jesus if indeed he is the one who, or should they look for another? Perhaps it's just a different way of uh, viewing that same encounter that we find in John's gospel. The manner in which Luke's Jesus says, come and see, is to tell these two to go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news brought to them. Richard Rohr asks, what then does it mean to follow Jesus? He writes that history is continually graced with people who somehow learn to act beyond and outside their self-interest and for the good of the world. People who clearly operated by a power larger than their own. Consider 
Gandhi, Oscar Schindler, Martin Luther King Jr., Oscar Romero, Cesar Chavez, Dolores Huerta, and many unsung leaders. Their inspiring witness offers us strong evidence that the mind of Christ still inhabits the world. Most of us are fortunate to have crossed paths with many lesser known persons, some right here in the Fairview community, who exhibit that same presence. Rory says, I can't say how one becomes such a person. All I can presume is that they were all called. They all had their Christ moments. They all had the answer to the question, what are you looking for? Rohr concludes, it is not an enviable position, this Christian thing. Following Jesus is a vocation to share the fate of God for the life of the world. To allow what God for some reason allows and uses, and to suffer ever so slightly what God suffers eternally. Often this has little to do with believing the right things about God beyond the fact that God is love itself. Could this be the real response to what you and I and us together and all the world are looking for? What are you looking for? Could it be to serve God and all creation as one beloved community? It's hard to imagine a response more rewarding. Martin Luther King Jr. said, everybody can be great. Everybody can be great because anybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and verb agree to serve. You only need a heart full of grace, a soul generated by love. Could it be that the answer to the question, what are you looking for, might be a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love? I guess we each will have to open our own box and see for ourselves. Amen.